Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Autism Confidential, the podcast from the National Council on Severe Autism. I am your host again today, Jill Escher. I am president of NCSA. Um, just to let you know, I'm not the only host. We actually have several people who will be rotating in as hosts, but I am hosting the first couple of episodes. So I'm sorry if you're getting a little tired of hearing my voice. It won't last for too much longer, I promise. Um, but today we have a very fabulous guest on our podcast, Hugo Dwyer. Hugo is the executive director of VOR, the Voice of Reason, which is a national nonprofit that represents the interests of um, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I believe, Hugo, you are in New York right now, aren't you? Yes, I am. Thank you. Okay. Jill. So joining us from New York, Hugo, Hugo Dwyer, welcome to Autism Confidential. So happy to have you here. I think we'll start um, just if, if you can provide our audience with background just about VOR, its history, what are your areas of focus? What do you want people to know about VOR? And also how you got involved. Okay. Uh, thank you, Joe. Um, as you said, I'm executive director of VOR. We've been around since 1983. Uh, first, let me start by saying thank you for inviting us to participate in this podcast. Um, and thank you for your partnership with VOR over the last few years. You've been uh, very helpful to us. We hope we've been helpful to you and your families as well. Indeed. Um, I, uh, VOR started out in 1983 as an organization to help people with choice. That's always been our bottom line. Um, at the time, that there was a lot of pressure to move people out of what they like to call as institutions. We call them intermediate care facilities or ICFs. Um, ICFs have developed a lot over the years and gotten better. And at the time, though, um, the system was still in this transition from the warehousing facilities into better models. One of those models was the home and community-based services, group homes, and a lot of families were pushing to eliminate ICFs completely and move only to the group home model. Uh, that's where VOR came along. We felt that both models were good, depending on the severity of need, um, and the choice that a family wanted to make. So we have been, we have a history of protecting the ICF model while supporting all other options. Most of our families are on the severe and profound end of the IDD scale uh, or have loved ones who are. Um, and so we spend most of our time and resources promoting uh, programs that, that help people on that end of the scale. Like the, National Council on Severe Autism, we felt over the years that those with the most severe disabilities are not seen by the general public. They are um, in the shadows and legislation has tended to keep them in the shadows. Uh, it's much easier to pass a bill that, uh, that works for a more um, visible audience to people. Uh, so, these are some of the um, challenges that we've met over the years. I got started with VOR basically because I have a brother who has lived, uh, most of, lived most of his life in an ICF in Connecticut, Southbury Training School. 
Tom moved there when he was about 20. He had been at home for a few years. My parents could not handle him. Uh, we tried Did he several... have a specific diagnosis? I'm just curious. At the time, he was diagnosed with uh, severe mental retardation. That was the term at the time. It later changed to IDD. Um, he had autism. He was bipolar. He was nonverbal. He had pica. Um, and he had some aggressive but mostly self-injurious behaviors. Um, at the time that he was in the group home, he had a lot of incidents of banging his head to the point that he had a dis detached cornea, um, a retina, I forget. Um, but, um, you know, permanent damage from this. They had him in football helmet and boxing gloves for a lot of the time. Um, he actually came to liking restraints, but even the group homes couldn't handle him. And he was a problem for the atmosphere they were trying to create with the other people in the home. And when they asked my parents to pick him up, he spent about six months in a state hospital until they found a placement for him. They found a placement at Southbury Training School. Um, at the time, Southbury Training School was not what it became later today. It was it still had way too many people in it. It was uh, not necessarily warehousing, but it was at the early years of the development of the ICF model mm -hmm. and, um, and the transition into that model. So uh, things improved. They had 24 hour, 24-7 uh, nursing care. So Tom got the treatment he needed. They had to come up with different um, combinations of medications for him. And anyone who's been through the medication game knows that they try something, they see what it works. If it doesn't, they have to taper them off, try something else. Meanwhile, they got to make sure it's not interacting with the other medications and so on. So it's a process and they handled it well they were patient and uh, over the years tom's medications would change they'd have to go through the process again but he got great care tom passed away about a year and a half ago just short of his 64th birthday um i don't think Can tom i asked what 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 caused his death Do you oh know? he he had a pancreatic cancer oh wow um, yeah and it came very quickly um it was amazing how they handled it um, because it was so quick. His caregivers were very emotionally involved. Um, they had respite on the grounds of the ICF for him um, so he could stay in his room for his uh, last days. He didn't have to move out. The care he got was amazing and um, it was it was beautiful. I mean, he, he was surrounded by the people who knew him for years. He was surrounded by people who actually loved him and cared for him. And uh, I, we couldn't have asked for a better process for his final days. So he lived there the mo in that, was it called in Sudbury School? Sudbury? Southbury. Southbury. Southbury Training. School. School in yes. New York. No, in Connecticut. In Connecticut. Okay, I'm sorry. So pardon me. We were me. all born and raised in Connecticut. Okay. <laughs> um, 
um, an ICF in Connecticut, and it, it obviously still exists today. Yes, state operated. Right. And, uh, the campus was about 1,600 acres, beautiful old buildings. They've also built a number of newer buildings. Tom lived in a cottage. Um, he had a room with a roommate. He had the option of having a room by himself. Tom liked having a roommate. Mm. Um, and, uh, it, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the people who are against ICS talk about how it's not a community, it's isolating and so on. It was a community. Tom was with his friends, his peers, mm -hmm. the DSPs, the caregivers who he knew for 10, 15, 20 years. There was one woman, a physical therapist, who had known Tom for 40 years. When he got there, she had met him. Um, and I mean, those relationships are so critical to somebody with IDD. You can't develop a relationship with caregivers who change every six months, every year, two years or something. It it's takes actually more frequent than that right right now. I know, I know. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, so this is the importance of, of the ICF model mm -hmm. for the severely developed, you know, disabled people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what I hear from across the country that there are obviously ICFs aren't appropriate for a lot of people with IDD. Nobody wants to put people involuntarily into ICFs. Nobody wants to intentionally isolate them in ICFs, which is kind of the trope we hear a lot from the disability rights people. You know, what I hear in reality are cases kind of like your brother's where they had tried other options, like they had been in group homes, right? They had been in supported living, you know, quote unquote, in the community, and that had failed them. They needed something with more structure. They needed something with more expertise. They needed something sometimes with more space. Um, and sometimes, you know, an on-site medical component, you know, there are all kinds of things that are involved in ICFs that you can't find in the community. So, you know, what, what, what we hear from people isn't that there is anything like an intentional movement to isolate people or you know, put them away from society. Instead, it is one option in the continuum of care that is needed by a subset of people with IDD. I mean, that's a more rational approach to considering what ICFs are. Unfortunately, we see them um, just condemned, right, with sometimes hyperbolic language that seems to be detached from reality. I'm wondering when, when you are engaged, oh, there's your kitty. Hi, kitty. <laughs> um, when you are engaged in disability rights debates, how do you see ICFs properly characterized, mischaracterized? You know, they're demonized, which, which seems to me insane, right? I'm, I'm curious, what, what has your experience been? I've always felt that we should have a very flexible system that if you need a certain level of care at a certain type of your life at a period you're going through, you should be able to get that care. And if things change, you should be able to get another type of care. Um, we do this with every aspect of our society, except with people with intellectual disability. We, you know, if a family wants to get care for their child, they contact the state agency, 
they apply for something, they say, well, what is an ICF? And the state immediately tells them, well, sorry, we can't get you into an ICF. And there are no beds available. And they say, well, can I be on the waiting list? And they say, no, there's, there's no waiting list for ICFs. If you want care, you've got to waive your right to the ICF and go into home and community-based services. And so they waive their right and they go on the waiting list at home and community-based services. Um, it shouldn't be that way. You should be able to get the care you need at the time of your life. Um, all levels of, of care for, for something like mental health should be available to people as they need them. Um, you know, when if people have, say, a drinking problem, they can just go to AA and detox themselves sometimes. Other times they need a, metal, a medical detox. Other times they may have to go to rehab for a month, for three months, six months. Um, they may need a, a community setting to go to. That's acceptable. We, we, There's that's, no one size fine. fits all in, in no. how we approach other disabilities and disorders. Right. Um, when, as we grow as non-disabled people or, or non-intellectually disabled people, uh, you know, we, our parents protect us in school and high school, send us off to college. They want us to stay in the dorm because it's kind of safe. And if you're good, they, they may let you move off campus. You go off, have a family and so on. And later in life, you may want to live in a adult community, a retirement community, assisted living is a possibility. We make those choices as we go through phases of our lives. We should be able to look at the disability community, the intellectually disabled, the autism community, and say, what do you need at this point in your life? Right, we'll with that same flexibility and fluidity and person-centered yes. right, basis. If, yeah, I mean, some families, you know, raise their, uh, intellectually disabled children at home, when they hit uh, their early teens, their behaviors change, uh, their bodies change. Um, sometimes they, they become aggressive and violent, which they hadn't been before. Other times they had been before, but sometimes this is a change. Maybe that's a time when a person needs a different level of care. And after a series of, uh, you know, a couple of years in an ICF, where they're getting that 24-7 care and that on-site care and behaviors come under control, then they can live in a group home. But we also know that there are people in group homes. Uh, Misericordia has a group home system for people with Down syndrome. And they found that as people with Down syndrome age, they get early dementia. And so they've set up a um, set of homes for people with Down syndrome with dementia. That to me makes perfect sense. That's accommodating people as they grow, as they find they, they need different facilities, different levels of care. That's what we should be doing. It should be a flexible system. If you need one kind of service, it should be available to you. Now that, you know, it's, it's not as easy to do that if you're in the middle of Wyoming or a large rural state where you, you know, it's, the services have to be centralized. But wherever we can, we should offer as many options as possible. We should meet the needs of the community rather than tell them that they need to be part of our community. 
Let me ask you about access to ICFs. I just interviewed Scott Mendel and Ashley Kimwise from Together for Choice. And Scott had replied to this question that, yes, technically, there is a legal entitlement under Medicaid to ICFs for those who require that level of care, you know, what is called in the statutes, or at least in the regulations, an institutional level of care. Now, the, the problem is that a lot of states don't have ICFs, so some of them will have to be sent out of state and that you have no control over the location or of the quality of the ICF, you know, um, when you actually get legal access to it. Can you tell me in reality, how does it work? Let's say you're, you know, Joe Schmo family in New York, you know, you have a child with, who's, let's say, aggressive and has other, has maybe destructive behaviors, has very minimal functional capacity, you know, who has failed in a group home and who really needs an ICF level of care, what does that family do to, to access that appropriate placement? Well, first of all, they don't live in New York because New York got rid of its state-operated ICFs, has only a couple of private ICFs at this point, and they're almost impossible to get into. Uh, that is not uncommon in different states. In fact, what is common, what is most uncommon is the inability to get into an ICF if you need to. Uh, there are fewer and fewer every year. Um, and ICF beds don't turn over quickly. If somebody is in an ICF and is working for them, it is a long-term care facility. And they may want to stay there for 20 years. That may work for them for 30 or like my brother for 40 years, other people 50 years. So if you've got an ICF with um, a group of people who are not likely to turn over, maybe every couple of years, one bed becomes available. If the state is allowing admissions to ICFs, a lot of states like Connecticut, where my brother was, closed admissions to the, to the state-operated ICFs. So you had to get into a private ICF, which again was hard because the beds aren't available. Um, so this idea that that the Medicaid laws entitle these individuals to ICF placement is not true. There is no entitlement, you're saying, because in reality, the placements don't exist. Or does that entitlement exist on paper, but not in reality? Exactly. Um, it's, you know, you're entitled to these services. We just don't have anything for you. and. Your option is to give away those services, not even to get on the waiting list for home and community-based services with the caveat that if something opens up in an ICF, you would really prefer that. No, you have to sign away. You have to waive your right to that. Now, that In order waiver... to access HCBS, you're saying? Yes. And yes. HCBS, for those who just don't know, are home and community-based services, um, which is another funding stream within Medicaid um, that pays for supports in the community, i.e. outside of these ICF or what are sometimes called institutional settings. Um, as we know, um, 
HCBS often fails miserably at serving the needs of adults with severe autism. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so we have a lot of people who are told, well, HCBS is your only option, but then in reality, there are no providers and but not even mentioning um, the difficulty in accessing the brick and mortar housing, right? Which is the predicate to receiving HCBS funding. So it's, it, yeah. Anyway, sorry, Hugo, didn't mean to. <laughs> no, that's good. Thank you for to, explaining that. To again. cut you off. Um, so, you know, there has been this movement to shut down ICFs as like these evil institutions. Is that based, do you think that's been based more on ideology, um, a sort of simple mindedness, a sort of black and white thinking, or has it really been motivated by, by money? or both, what do you think is behind all of this closure of disability specific facilities at a time when we know there is ever increasing demand for them? Um, that's a good question. Part of it is ideology. Um, I know that uh, I went to an ARC conference in DC a couple of years ago and they had this huge display on Pennhurst and how horrible an institution Pennhurst was and people were warehoused there and they made it seem as though that's still what ICFs are and that that's what they are fighting against. And can you and tell people about Pen Pennhurst for those who don't know? Pennhurst um, and Willowbrook are the two most often cited cases of uh, warehousing of individuals and um, I guess Willowbrook was is famous for making Geraldo Rivera famous. Um, and, uh, but they did warehouse people there. They had way too many people, not enough staff. They didn't dress them every day. They didn't bathe them every day. There were huge problems. It's not the way the system is supposed to work. Is the system working now? A lot better. Is it working the way we all want it to as families? Mm, not enough. On any level, the people who get at-home service need more caregivers to help them out. The people who are in group homes, a lot of them are doing well, but it's it's dicey when you know if the staff changes, it's not the same home it was a year ago. Um, ICFs, I think, in the last couple of years, have actually managed to do better than a lot of other facilities, but. That's not to say there are no problems in ICFs. Uh, one thing, since you mentioned the two funding streams, um, recently there's been a lot of effort to give money to HCBS facilities. And those who, character, who do this characterize it as being, we're helping people with IDD, we're helping people with autism and severe autism by giving to this HCBS service. They don't mention that there are two funding streams and that they're only giving to one. And while ICF, state-operated ICFs, like where my brother lived, have a lot of staff that are um, unionized and paid better than the average direct support professional. Mm -hmm. But non-state-operated, uh, the private-operated ICFs draw from the same pool of workers as group homes. So if uh, like ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act uh, had in it 
a whole lot of money for HCBS services to pay direct support professionals better. Mm -hmm. But that if the states could spend it to give it to that population, increase that, but they didn't spend it on the pool for ICF workers. They couldn't because it wasn't in the HCBS stream. So if you're a um, group home provider who also has some ICFs, and you can suddenly pay the people who are working in your HCBS group homes more money, but you can't increase the salary for the people in your ICF homes, what do you do? Do you Can you pay them out of your own pocket? Well, most providers can't afford to do that. They can't afford to make a difference of a couple of dollars an hour per person uh, for the facilities. So that, those acts, this was in the American Rescue Plan Act, and it was also written into the original Build Back Better bill. Mm -hmm. um, that would kill the ICF um, by making it impossible to, to staff, um, you know. And, and that may have been the intention of the advocates yeah, who were proposing I this. I don't want to say it's necessarily the intention. It may just be the unintentional consequences of good-hearted people. Mm -hmm. But there are those among us who really do agree and feel that uh, there there was intent there. Mm -hmm. um, now, those Scott, bills didn't pass. No, but Scott Bendel and I and uh, a woman, Linda Bennett, from the union and other people fought very hard to try to get parity into the Build Back Better Act, where ICFs would get the same ratio of money that they've mm -hmm. been paid over the recent years. Mm -hmm. uh, as as part of that money. And the people who pushed for the HCBS facilities uh, to get $400 billion said, you can ask for that on top of our $400 billion, but you can't take any of our $400 billion for it. And when that number got reduced to $200 billion or $160 billion, they were much more protective of it e even so. Uh, they were like, well, you shouldn't be getting anything because we're having a hard enough time getting this 160 billion. Um, they didn't oppose us outwardly, but I think the opposition was obviously there. You know that, what drives me nuts is which thing? There's so many things <laughs> that drive coming. me nuts. Which of the five thousand <laughs> things drive me nuts? I mean, why can't we just have one system? I mean. It would make sense to me that there are people who have these very intensive needs and who need these highly specialized placements with well-trained staff. It also makes sense to me that there are people, because I have tenants like this, who function very well in their own apartment, you know, with assistance, you know, with some training, with some coaching, et cetera, and supports, and everything in between. Why don't we just have one system that's based on you know, the actual needs of the individuals rather than this bifurcated system. It, this is just an artifact of history, I suppose, right? Like no one would design a system like this today. Like if you were to set it up, you wouldn't do it this way. I mean, what, what can we do uh, as a practical matter to make sure that people with these intensive needs have access to the care they need, whether it's under HCBS or ICFs or both. My concern, Hugo, to be honest, 
is that as the parent generation becomes increasingly fragile and infirm and dead, that these individuals really have nowhere to go and we will end up with a warehousing situation because we haven't created the infrastructure that we need. You may, I'm just concerned that as a pragmatic purpose, we are not going like this deinstitutionalization, if that's what you want to call it, this movement will result in more institutionalization because we haven't created what we need to True. serve these people. We can't just wishful think away their disability. What, what do you think? Am I, I, I agree with you though. The system that we have uh, was built by a multitude of errors. The first one being splitting the two systems and uh, the second one being building the second, the new system, the HCBS system, uh, on the idea of we're going to staff this with people who are willing to take minimum wage. Um, and not just minimum wage, but federal minimum wage, which is often less than state minimum wage. And in this fact, is... if I can interject for a second, years ago, I was talking to somebody who was who had been working in the California Regional Center system mm -hmm. for decades, old timer. And we were talking about the closure of what are called our developmental centers, which were our state run ICFs. And he said to me, Jill, this had nothing to do with quality of service. It had nothing to do with, you know, wanting to place people in the community. It had nothing to do with that. He said it had everything to do with wanting to defund the union jobs, he said, for example, the psych techs at the time got $35 an hour, he said, and they were called psych techs. You know, they were well-trained. These were kind of career path jobs, you know, with full benefits. He said, we wanted to replace those with minimum wage jobs, right, in, in the community. So that's what, that was the driver behind closure of developmental centers. He said, you know, all that ideology, ideology stuff was just sort of window dressing. He said that to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, now it's clear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you see this na nationwide oh, as well? Definitely. Um, and as I was saying, the, the system is built on the idea of hiring um, from the same pool of people who work at McDonald's uh, or you know, Walmart and, and so on, the minimum wage workers. Being a DSP is more than a job. It becomes a calling. The people learn that they can communicate with somebody who is nonverbal, uh, does not have any outward forms of expression that the untrained worker is going to recognize. They learn that they have something special to reach out and get through to people. They enjoy giving this level of care. Um, it's, it's a calling, it's not a job. And those people who meet those requirements uh, or, you know, those standards should be um, paid accordingly. They should be rewarded for the level, the kind of work they do and so on. Um, they should be able to have not just a, a living wage, but they should be able to raise a family with their wage, especially when they're required anytime somebody does not show up for the next shift, 
they're required to stay on call until the shift after them and somebody shows up during covid and other you know health crises people were often working three shifts they couldn't get home to see their families during this time that's a lot to ask of somebody who you're paying minimum wage that's why we lost so many people during covid or one of several reasons you've got to pay these people well you've got to treat them with the respect that they give to your family member and the state agencies generally aren't prepared to do that and the the system is is broken on that level well we're experiencing obviously a national staffing crisis Mm -hmm. um, which is the result of these very low wages Um, there's a labor shortage nationwide across areas not just in um, disability care seems to be rather acute though in disability care because of the low wages and also the difficult work that is involved. I mean, you mentioned some aspects just now, which is, you know, shift after shift, but there's also the nature of the job, which can be extremely difficult, sometimes hazardous, sometimes lonely, sometimes frustrating, um, sometimes monotonous, you know, and sometimes not. I mean, it it depends on the situation. Um, What's the way out of this staffing crisis? Well, part of it is wages, but that's only a small part. Um, significant part, because if if you can't feed your family, you're going to look for another job. But it needs to be a career path. If we want people to stay five years, 10 years, and so on, we've got to give them a sense of worth, a sense of respect from the community. Hey, here's, here's somebody who is a professional, a healthcare professional, not just a treat them like a diaper changer or something. Mm-hmm. Um, they are professionals. They need a career path. They need a chance to get promotions. And if, if they want to move laterally or vertically within the healthcare professions, uh, this can be a good starting place for somebody. It shouldn't be, um, just something that people do for six months or a year, and then they get a good job elsewhere. Um, And, you know, there should be benefits there. We should treat it like any other company. You know, um, if McDonald's or somebody is having trouble staffing uh, a couple of locations in or a city, they look at the pool of workers and they find out how to better address the needs of those workers. McDonald's gave scholarships to their workers. They created programs to uh, help people elevate to become managers and then open their own facilities, uh, open their own you know, franchises. That's, that's what companies do because they want to retain workers. They know the value of retaining workers. It's even if you're paying people more money, you're saving money by not constantly training new workers and having new workers who are susceptible to making those same mistakes, those beginner's mistakes constantly. Uh, One reason ICFs work so well is the long-term staffing, but it's also the fact that if you get new hires at a good ICF with a good staff, they get trained by experienced people. They, They get to see different types of disabilities and how other people have treated them it's a master class in 
being a caregiver. Uh, you're not going to mm -hmm. get that if you're working in a group home where the other staff members are constantly changing and nobody has any experience. Uh, oh, to share are you with kidding? You. It's worse than that. I mean, it, it, my experience, I, I briefly worked with an agency that did what's called supported living out here in California, which is where they send staff to the individual's home. These are people who worked with my son. These people had no training. I mean, they had to be fingerprinted. They had to take CPR classes. They, they had no training. I mean, I, I had one woman who came in and she locked herself in the house, locked my son in the backyard, and she sat there. And that's what that what that was what she did for her job. She sat there, you know, looking at her phone, no interaction, literally locked the door between them. And that was it. I mean, these agencies, and then I talked to the agencies, they're like, well, we don't have any funding for training. They literally say we don't do training. <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. that's how bad it is. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we have this crisis, not only of quality, which we've just discussed, but also of quantity, right? We have wait lists that are, in my mind, deeply immoral. You know, wait lists, 6,000, 8,000, 80,000, 100,000 people on wait lists for services in different states people with IDD, it, it's unbelievable. Um, we can, when, when, you, when you have the crisis of, of quality and the crisis of quantity, it, it's a multiplier, right? In terms of the need out there. Um, obviously we're very much in favor of expanding access to both ICFs and HCBS. And we know there was a big push, right? To eliminate, we just talked about it, to eliminate wait lists or at least radically reduce the wait lists for, for at least HCBS. What is, there's, you know, there's just no political will to do it. I mean, it seems to be a matter of political will. I mean, I was talking, uh, I was at a meeting um, again a couple of years ago in Sacramento, California state capital with some leaders of our health and human services system here. And one of the leaders said, listen, it's a bottomless pit. We can just keep thro throwing money into it, but it's just a bottomless pit. And I think that bottomless pit comment really lodged in my brain because I think that's how legislators think about it. And it's why there is no political will. Unlike infrastructure where it's like a bit, you know, a new bridge, a new highway, mm -hmm. new transit system, it seems to, you know, be for the betterment of society. But when it comes to funding basic disability services is seen as the bottomless pit and not as a benefit to society. I think that's kind of what's driving this lack of political will. Can you, can you tell me what has your experience been working with legislators? How do they perceive of this problem? And is there a path forward? Good question. Um, <clears throat> one thing is we need to show people that if a family like like yours has a child who requires high levels of care and a lot of work that you know they, they talk about this being a cost center and and it just costs money to look after these people well you become productive by having somebody care for your family member and you're being able to work you're being able to do to contribute to society. If you have to stay at home 24 seven, 
you're not, you and your child are not able to contribute to society. But if you get the services you need, your child is cared for and you are contributing to society. And, you know, uh, people have to understand this. Um, talking to legislators, first of all, we generally talk to staffers and staffers explain the issue to the legislators. So they get it secondhand. Um, but the staffers, I've got to say, I admire them. They're good. They're the smartest kids on the block. Um, and a lot of them get it. Um, I've spoken to some staffers and you get that, uh, what my <laughs> wife calls the dog look where they're just kind of, <laughs> and other staffers will tell you, will ask you good questions. They may have a family member who worked with our population or taught special needs kids at school or something. They understand on a different level. Um, and hopefully those staffers will be there for years and will remember our organizations. When you go back and talk to somebody, um, from the next congressman's office. It may be the same person as the last congressman's office, or it may be somebody across the state that they're working for now. And they say, Jill, I remember you from when I was working with so-and-so. That's the kind of relationships we need because those people are the keys. They're the ones who make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, your podcasts make a difference. Your website makes a difference. Your Facebook page makes a difference because you're out there you're telling people this story. We've got to put the information out there. We never know what the returns are going to be. Chances are you're going to influence somebody who will not even talk to you and not even tell you that they learned something from you and it got them a service. You do it thanklessly. You do it because that's, that's what you do. You get the information across, you get it out there and other people will benefit from it and you will never know how many seeds you threw out there and and how many of them ended up growing into oak trees well speaking of that here's a shameless plug for ncsa's new um, national grassroots network which we are just starting up um, this spring and uh, you can find it at ncsautism.org just click on national network and sign up just takes a minute and uh, we are creating a, a network across all 50 states uh, where people are really empowered to do this advocacy for our community with the legislative community, both on the state and national level. Okay, end of shameless plug. That was so, a wonderful plug. <laughs> <laughs> so what are VOR's priorities right now? Um, the priorities change and they stay the same. When new legislation comes, we speak to legislators and staffers about the needs for these, uh, for our views to be represented in the legislation. In between them, like right now, it looks like the Build Back Better bill isn't going anywhere. Uh, the transformation to competitive employment bill is kind of on hold. So Can some you, of these- Can you maybe tell people a little, they might not be familiar with it, give a little blurb about that. Okay, transformation to, to competitive employment. We support competitive employment, but we feel as though competitive employment programs can coexist with programs that pay commensurate wages. Um, 
We and, call it non-competitive employment. <laughs> right. Right. The, the nice thing. Yeah. yeah. The nice thing about those jobs is that people get a chance to develop their skills. Instead of being in a day program, they are working, they are contributing to their environment. They're getting what's called a commensurate wage. If you only work 65% as quickly as a non-disabled person, uh, a company may not be able to afford paying you as much as they pay the other person, but they pay you what is commensurate. Sometimes it's below minimum wage, sometimes it's still above minimum wage, depending on the work that the company is hired to do. Um, we like these programs. We There's no requirement to be in one. If you can qualify for com competitive employment and find it, that's great. If you're more comfortable working in um, this environment, this is great. We just, you know, same as ICFs and group homes and everything, we support all the options. If you leave those options open, let families and individuals choose what's the best fit for them. That's not going to happen if you close down options. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, we I forget where closed we were. on non. Oh, we were talking about <laughs> um, your your legislative priorities, basically. Oh. But yeah, about these non-competitive employment options. I mean, it seems obvious to me that we need non-competitive options. We have a growing population of people who are clearly incapable of competitive integrative work. It's beyond any, there's no shred of a doubt about that. Um, but, you know, state by state, they're foreclosing on them. They were foreclosed on California. So the only option is babysitting. The only option is day program. These people are legally prohibited from working because they obviously can't access competitive employment. The only employment option is now off the table. Who does that benefit? I'm trying to think, like, who does that benefit? It doesn't benefit anybody. I mean, it, it seemed to me insane, but nevertheless, this swept through California and now, you know, like my kids will never have any chance whatsoever at employment because of this. And they don't care. Yep. They don't care. You talk to the advocates and they're like, oh, you know, it's just price we have to pay. Like, really? <laughs> really? Because there, it's not like they're great day program options for our kids. In fact, they're zero program options for my son. So I, I find it all mystifying how these people choose their priorities. I, for the life of me, I can't understand. Anyway, sorry, I, back to your, back, back to I, I, I think that there is something with disenfranchised populations, with people who are left on the margins, that sometimes they hook up together, support one another, and make change uh, in, a, in a way that helps everybody. Other times they kind of splinter. And there are those who join together and get some sort of access. They get their foot in the door, but they leave the others behind. Or they climb the ladder and pull it up behind them, whatever analogy. That's you how it use. very much feels. Yeah. And that's, that's how it feels with the disability community as a whole. Um, when I when I've been to the um, president's committee of people with intellectual disabilities meetings, they were talking about getting rid of 14C uh, opportunities, and part 14C of that means it, that's the non-competitive employment. Non-competitive employment. Yeah. 
I hope and she knows that she's in the background of our she video. She knows she's in the background. <laughs> You're being recorded. We're <laughs> say hi to our podcast. <laughs> she has a Zoom meeting coming okay. with the city council. Um, yeah, it, it's just um, I forget where I was. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, well, we were talking about um, advocates who are kind of pulling up the ladder behind them. Oh, right. Um, it's, but, it's a shame that that happens in this community, but it, really it has is. been the case. And um, yeah, almost systematically excluded, I would say, you know, the people with the, the severe needs are almost systematically excluded from kind of the, the disability in circle, the disability advocacy coalitions. Um, you know, disability is now seen to be as just a different ability <laughs> instead of really disability. Uh, there's there's a lot of euphemism. There's a lot of kind of sugarcoating of, of reality going on. And, you know, I think that our kids like ours pay the price. Our kids like mine at least pay the price. They um, do. Any other um, priorities, you know, advocacy priorities you want to share with us before we move on to our last question? Okay, well... One thing that we do when there aren't bills around, when it looks like the Build Back Better isn't going to go through in its form and uh, other bills aren't, aren't going to happen, is we still get out there with legislative aides. We talk about our population. We inform uh, them of how wide the spectrum of people with disabilities is and the fact that there are people who are left behind. You never know when the next bill is going to come up. And by speaking constantly with the legislative aides, they they have their their eyes open. They see something and go, "Oh, this looks good." Yeah, but wait, what was that thing that Jill Escher said that her kids are going to be left out of this and so on? You know, they get that awareness. They look at it through that lens. Mm -hmm. um, if if we don't speak to them, they're going to have that point of view that everybody with autism has a superpower. Uh, you can be the good doctor. You can be Elon Musk. Um, right. You know, <laughs> uh, we we are the ones who show how wide the spectrum is, and that takes constantly, constantly advocating and informing and educating other people. Right. We are one hundred percent in favor of showing the realities of these individuals and of their families. Um, because if those realities are swept under the rug, we become invisible in the legislative landscape. And that's absolutely crucial to us. If so, you look at the evolution of medicine mm -hmm. and how we came from the, the dark ages and where people would go to barbers to have leeches put on them um, <laughs> to the modern medical system. And you also look at the mental health mental health has lagged behind greatly. As a mm -hmm. society, we do not like to talk about mental health. Um, it's taken years for uh, the Veterans Administration to cover PTSD. It used hmm. to just be the whole thing that grandpa came back from the war and he was never the same since. Um, we, we swept that under the rug. Uh, I've got to commend the Veterans Administration for stepping up on that. We used to warehouse people with IDD. It wasn't until John Kennedy came along 
and really his sister Rosemary and his other sister Eunice Shriver uh, became his guide for doing this. Um, his, his sister Eunice really pushed uh, all the legislation we know. Um, that was, what, 60 years ago. I mean, 60 years. We developed the ICF system. We developed the home and community-based care system. Uh, you know, addiction treatment started in the 30s. Before that, alcoholics uh, were, and you know, opium eaters and so on were were shameful people. Mm -hmm. uh, then we started to recognize it as a disease. Uh, we started to see that there was treatment for this, that people could come through and live good lives. Uh, we treat mental illness and schizophrenia differently than we used to. We still don't treat any of these things right. We don't do them the way we need to as a society. We can uh, give you an artificial heart. We can transfer lungs uh, you know, to, to people and, and all kinds of organs. But what do we do about mental health, especially when it comes to intellectual disabilities, autism? We're so many decades behind on that. And that's well, and now we with the, the rising crisis related to homelessness, addiction, and mental illness on our streets, which is increasingly prevalent here in California, and I'm told is the number one issue among voters in California, um, because there's no, even assuming we had laws that required people to access treatment, there's very little treatment to access, right? Right. There aren't the programs, and this isn't developmental disability. The vast majority of these people have other issues, namely mental illness and addiction. But nevertheless, it's the same sphere of, of concepts. Like we don't have the places to put them. We don't have the personnel to take care of them. I mean, it almost feels like we need a sea change in how we see our medical care system when it comes to cognitive and mental disabilities. And that sea change is not happening, not yet. We see the need, everyone seems to see the need, but there's not the political will to create. Right. How many people graduate med school and go into pediatrics instead of going into geriatrics? We've got just as many seniors as we do, <laughs> babies and children. Mm -hmm. But the choice is uh, not to go into geriatrics. As a society, we need to encourage one another to do the right thing more, um, to step okay. up, change the yeah. system, open it up, yeah. take care of one another better. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's political will. It's what we as voters and our representatives are willing to, to fund and do. And, and the, it, the more it's, awareness- It's also societal change. Um, you know, we've we've known for years about global warming, about climate change, about population growth and all kinds of things. But until recently, it's just been, you know, well, I know about that, but I'm still not going to recycle or you know, <laughs> uh, I'm going to use the, uh, you know, drive, leave my car idling and, and use up more gas or whatever. Um, we're we're starting to change as people, as a society, and become more conscious of certain things. 
And one of those things we need to change as a society is that level of awareness, that level of caring for one another, um, mm -hmm. that sense that that we have to look out for each other, that it is a village and that as a society, we're only as strong as how well we take care of our weakest members. Um, I think that's true. I have another layer of sort of another paradigm um, beyond just sort of this sort of moral essence idea, which is we take out insurance for life's eventualities, right? We'll take out health insurance, you know, in case we get hit by a car you know, or we need cancer treatment. You know, we have home insurance in case our house burns down, right? We have renter's insurance in case something happens to our unit. You know, we have, um, you know, liability insurance in case like I get into a car crash. I have auto insurance in case I need to replace the car. I, you know, we take out insurance because we are aware that there might be very expensive things coming on that we can't handle, right? So we're willing to put money into a pot. What we don't have is a national insurance system around autism. We do to an extent in that IDEA provides a, an entitlement to a free and appropriate public education. That's sort of an insurance you know, me mechanism, right? Okay, it would cost you $50,000 or $100,000 to educate your kid privately, but you're in the public school system, they're gonna pay for it, right? But when they exit, the insurance mentality is gone, right? There's a wait list instead. I, I think we need more of an, because autism is now so prevalent, we are seeing it absolutely reaching 3% of all children in some cases, 4% of all children. In New Jersey, we're seeing closer to 5% of all children, right? It's a massive population, which imposes, I'm sorry to say, exceedingly high costs on family and society. We need more of an insurance mentality. I mean, take the morality out of it, which I, I actually agree with, but I'm saying just take that out of it. We need to think of this as a national insurance policy, more and more families have the burden, and it is unfortunately the burden of autism, um, which, you know, they don't have a safety net for because our safety net's so broken. I don't know. I just feel like that's a very pragmatic way to think about it. And we're not even thinking about it that way. There's obviously no private mechanism. It has to be a public System. And and as you say, the moral essence part of it is one component. Yeah. The financial part of it is another. The legislative part of it is another. They all amount to the will to do something. Mm -hmm. We do more to cure male pattern baldness than we do to look after people with IDD. I mean, you know, that's yeah. that's a fact with our society. Mm -hmm. That's that's where our thinking is. Um, you know, we we don't take care of women's health as well as men's health. Mm -hmm. And women's clothing generally costs more than the same article of clothing in, in a men's store. A man, man can buy a t-shirt for five bucks. A woman has to pay $35 for a t-shirt. And yeah. it's not all that different. So this is where we are as a society. And this is the same society that neglects people with mental illness, with intellectual disabilities, Mm -hmm. um with with any disability really 
But within the disability community, there are so many tiers and so on. And um, I've got to say, I, I, I love the, the deaf community and what they have done to really take care of their own and establish um, a, their own community. No one tells the deaf community, hey, you guys aren't integrating with the rest of uh, the world. You know, you've got to stop doing this. You, you know, speak English. Don't don't do this uh, American Sign Language or anything. The blind community has done a great job of looking after its own and so on. Mm -hmm. Families in the IDD community are on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of them, there is no uh, core of, of people they can turn to. I mean, now we've got the National Council of Autism, we've got VOR, but locally, um, Tom's ICF, we had a lot of families as part of our family group. Uh, we had, you know, a hundred some odd members in the group. They would share their problems. They were like the PTA in terms of trying to get, improve the facility within it. And they were also out there legislating and trying to keep, uh, the place, the place open and open to admissions. Um, once you lose an ICF and move and the state closes it and families move into group homes, there is no organization where they talk to one another. There are a couple of them in a group home that parents of people in group homes often have no idea who the other parents are. Mm -hmm. There's no interaction and so on. That's what's really missing with the um, with our culture. We don't have um, other people to talk to other people to unite with locally we have us nationally you know you're here now and we're here and together for choice um several other organizations but locally what do you do if if you're not happy with your group home provider if you you don't have any other families you know to call um or you maybe have one or two but you don't have a network of you know 50 people who are going to show up on the state house steps and you know well the, the difference is that um, other disability groups they can all self-advocate and our people can't right? right they have they have no voice of their own they're totally dependent on their loved ones you know their their family members usually you mm -hmm. know to advocate for them and and you're right i mean we don't have direct access you know, to each other often in communities. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, as I say, we're, we're doing what we can to, uh, to promote that sort of uh, local advocacy through our grassroots network. But I, I agree, it's much harder when you have a group of people who inherently cannot self-advocate, um, you know, to give them a voice. So finally, Hugo, um, let's say I'm in a state, I don't, I'll pick a random state, Missouri. <laughs> I don't know, any state. And I want to get a list of all the ICF D, you know, for DD, for IDD in that state. How do I do that? Because I want to, I want to see if there are some open placements for my kid. What, what good, can I do? Good question. And it depends what state you're in. Um, I, I did some research trying to reach out to private ICFs. And I found in Louisiana, it was very easy for me to get information on them. I still had to try to contact them and you know, go through their own levels of, you know, 
who are you calling? Why are you calling for this person? And so on. But um, it was easier to find a list. In some states, it's, it's very difficult to find a list. Um, this should be very easy. It should be as easy as signing up to vote, as registering your, your child in kindergarten. Um, you should be able to but find- it, Let's say I did a Public Records Act request or you know, a FOIA request on the federal but You shouldn't level. even have to do that. I know we shouldn't have to. I agree. This should yeah. be a transparent system. I agree with you. Yeah. Just like colleges, like when you look up colleges, you get a list of colleges. We should get the same thing, right, for these type of facilities. Yeah. But legally, you know, you can't do that. But it's all public record, right? The, the things that Medicaid dollars fund, right, the list of facilities they fund, that's public record. There must be a mechanism short of doing a FOIA request. There should be. You should mm -hmm. think that CMS, which regulates all Center of the- Center for Medicaid, K, yes. Medicare and K, Medicaid services. Yep. Right. Uh, they, they regulate, they license all of these facilities. They you know, um, make sure that they get paid and so on and so forth. You would think they would have a list that they could share if you, if you call them up and say, hey, Ohio, I need to know something in Northern Ohio quick. Uh, I, I need 20 phone numbers to call to try to get services. Mm -hmm. I say, I'm sorry, uh, we can give you something that, that came from a university study and they'll mm -hmm. give you a, a report or something that comes, but it's like, wait, you guys are paying the bills. You don't, the bills. Yeah. You, you don't have the return addresses of the people whose bills you're paying. Um, you know, you just have what their bank account numbers or something. Um, this is ridiculous. We should be able to access this stuff easily. Um, it should be no harder than enrolling your kid in, in kindergarten or first grade. Um, I, I, I really don't see why it's not available. Right. I mean, there are so many things about the disability environment, landscape, whatever, that make no sense to me. Like you were saying earlier, why do we have two systems for this? Why, why this? Why that? Why do we rely on an unpaid workforce or poorly paid workforce? Um, you know, everything about this makes no sense until you get down to the idea that, oh, well, it's mental health. We just don't care about don't mental care. health. Right. <laughs> it's meant to be broken, right? Yeah, it, exactly. The system's broken and that's the way it's meant to be. That's what yeah. some people say. Something's well, got to be broken. It might as well be this. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I hate to cut it off, uh, but um, I think this was a very nice introduction to VOR for people who aren't familiar with your organization. If you could just tell them um, how they can find you. Certainly. VOR. Uh, the easiest way is www.vor.net. That's our um, website. Also, our Facebook page. Uh, if you look us up on Facebook, we're at something. I, I forget what it is because I automatically go there. So, I, you know, it's like, uh, what's your own phone number? <laughs> or what are the phone numbers on your speed dial? You don't know what they are because uh, you click a button. But um, we're here. Uh, you can write us at info at VOR.net. Uh, you can write me at hdwire at VOR.net. We're, we're here and uh, we're happy to speak to you.
Thank you, Hugo, for joining us today. Thanks everyone for um, hanging in. This is sort of a long one, but I hope you learned um, something about our crazy broken system. And um, we'll, Hugo- we'll, uh, we'll edit a lot of that out, right? <laughs> perhaps. Well, thank you so much. Um, have a lovely day and everyone will see you next time um, on Autism Confidential. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor, please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice.